Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. couple things as, as we get going this morning, as we get into our passage. Um, one, um, the Supreme Court made a decision last week, and I want to touch on that, kind of share with you what God has been speaking to me about that. But I want to share that with you at the end, because um, I don't want us to be misfocused this morning outside of what I believe God has for us in particular. So if you're here this morning saying, well, no one said anything about a Supreme Court decision this week. I will, we'll get there, but don't, don't worry about it, but we'll get there and it, we're being intentional about that. Um, this morning, uh, we are in Acts chapter four. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts four, verse 32. Um, I'm gonna read the passage that we have. And then I want to be as uh, efficient as I can walking through four things that I think we need to be thinking about and processing in this passage. Um, My desire, and it's a growing conviction about our Sunday morning gatherings, is that I think I grew up thinking that the sermon on Sunday morning is a beginning and an end, and then we go from there. Um, I, I think that the message on Sunday morning is incapable of being a defining end point. <laughs> it is an opportunity to handle the word with integrity and begin us in a deeper heart search, scripture search, and spirit submission moving forward. So my prayer this morning is that as we walk through some things that it would simply provoke you to move deeper into the conversation, searching your own heart, searching scriptures, and walking in community with the family of God as you start to wrestle with some of these things or continue to wrestle with these things. Um, I'm gonna start reading in, in chapter four. Verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were, one, were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and, bought, and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed, uh, and, it, and it was distributed, where I just lost my place. Um, I'll get there. Um, to each as had any need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But, A man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie 
to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds for the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for that much. And she said, yes, for that much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. <clears throat> Big picture, I think that we see in this passage is, is we see the visible and powerful work of the Spirit filling the early church along with the deceptive and divisive work of human beings who choose not to pursue the filling of the Holy Spirit. I think that's the big picture that we see here. Um, anytime the Spirit moves and transforms, Satan will undermine what that community represents every time. He doesn't take a day off. He doesn't say, I'm tired. He's not like, oh, I'm gonna give him a break. Anytime the Spirit moves and works, the enemy and our flesh will try to undermine what the Spirit is doing, without exception. Our outward behavior is always important. But what gives that outward behavior value and power is the state of our hearts. Someone with an evil heart can do good behaviors. Okay, we have to remember that. What gives power and value to what we do, our behaviors, is the state of our heart. Um, so, so the first thing that we see in this passage, in verse 32, we read this. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. There was in that spirit-filled community, there was unity in the body of believers. They're unified, they were together. It says the full number were of one heart and mind. Where it says one heart, we, it's easy for us to miss that because of the way we think and the, basically the way music, the music industry has taught us about our heart. Our heart is this core of feeling emotional things. Um, that's what we think of the heart. When we think of the heart, we draw hearts, we give, you know, Valentine's Day is represented by a heart. Here's the thing. As Luke writes this, and as the way scripture talks about the heart, the heart is not the seat of emotion, but it is the seat of our will. So, so when it says that the believers were of one heart, it did not mean that they were of one emotion or feeling towards one another. What it's saying is that they were of one will. Uh, the heart is the, a person's control center governing their thoughts and their deeds. 
So we need to understand that when, when the Bible talks about unity and being of one heart, it's saying that, that, that there is a surrender to God and each other willingly for the purpose of the mission that Jesus has called us on. What it's not saying is that everybody felt good about each other. Okay, I think that's really important because a lot of times when we think about unity, it means that we have good feelings towards each other. This is talking about a willful decision to say, I will, I will surrender my will to God and I will walk in community with the body of believers and I will have unity with them. It says, and of one soul, which would be the self, the whole person. They were all in. And, and, and so there's two things about this. The Spirit's work always precedes community and unity. We will not have true community or unity without the Spirit's work preceding that. We can't just muscle through that. The Spirit has to work. So outside of the Holy Spirit, there is really not unity or real community. There is something that exists which might make me feel good to some degree, but without the Spirit's work, we are lost. And here's the other thing. Spirit filling results in unity of people. Um, remember that there's a difference between the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Remember that when, when I believe that Jesus is who he said he was, and I confess with my mouth that he is King Jesus, that I, I receive salvation and the spirit at that moment dwells within me. But that doesn't mean I'm filled with the spirit. Being filled with the spirit is a moment by moment, willing release of my agenda, surrender of my will to God and letting him call the shots in my life. That is the filling of the spirit. And so here's, here's what I would say. And, and here's what maybe you can kind of wrestle with. Being spirit-filled results in unity. If there is not unity within the people of God, within this church, within the global church, if there is not unity within the people of God, then that people are not filled with the spirit. They are not filled with the spirit. I'm not saying they're not indwelt by the spirit, but they're not filled with the spirit if they're not in unity. In fact, I would say that maybe at that point they are filled with something else and we'll see this later in the story. I don't know the spiritual condition of Ananias and Sapphira in this story because scripture isn't clear. It is, very, it is a very real possibility that they have received salvation. It's also possible that they didn't. We don't know, so I'm not gonna talk about that. But we do know from Peter's very specific words, that in that moment that they were lying about what they had done, they were not filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and so, so really we see this first thing is unity in the body. Second thing is this, and it has to do with our relationship to possessions, and it kind of stems from unity in the body. It says, moving on in, in verse 432, it says, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Talks about the apostles continuing to give their testimony about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It says, great grace was upon them all. 
What a great thing to be in a community that great grace is upon all people in that community. Um, says there was not a needy person among them. Said people who were owners of land sold sometimes their land or houses and brought the proceeds of what was sold. And, and so, so basically, uh, there is a genuine care and compassion for one another in this community. And here's, here's what, here's the thing that I, again, I want you to wrestle with this. I want you to think about this. I don't want you to reject it out of hand, but I want you to consider whether or not this is what you should consider. They see each other as family, not like family. There's a difference between seeing each other as family or like family. There's no transaction or keeping score between people. And here's the thing, the defining of a family in that context, the way the Bible describes family post-resurrection is not the nuclear family that we so passionately defend and lament its breakdown. Family was defined by those who surrendered to Jesus Christ. That was family. And here's the thing that's hard. I'm not a fan of what I'm about to say because it brings great discomfort to me and threatens my very deeply held desires and convictions about life in general. How's that? It seems that scripture models for us that when we are in Christ Jesus, I have the same view and approach and investment in those who are also in Christ Jesus as I do my own family. The problem is for me is that I would jump to action very quickly if my oldest living on her own daughter, Allison, came to me and said, I'm in a crisis, I would do anything. But Dirk, to be honest, you're kind of on your own. <laughs> I mean, I'll pray with you, and I, I, will, I will have genuine care emotionally, but I'm gonna do anything for Allison, I probably... I'm gonna do a few simple, convenient things for you. That's not the model we are given in Scripture. I don't see this people as my family. I can use the word family and kick it around, but it has no depth. But that's what we see here. That's what we see. In fact, it's crazy because in, in the text, it says that this guy Joseph, who the apostles called Barnabas, uh, comes and, and he, he sells what he has and he gives it to the apostles. Here's what's crazy about that. He wasn't even 
he wasn't even in Jerusalem. He came from Cyprus, a totally different town. He wasn't part of that community. He came there and saw that there were needs and he did what he would do for his own family, for the people in Jerusalem at the church in Jerusalem. Think about that for a second. He didn't even, he didn't even know those people. He didn't even grow up with those people. He didn't see them like family. He saw them as family. So what we see is there's this voluntary, let's remember voluntary giving up of their stuff for the sake of others. I want you to understand, this is not a, com- as much as so many people wanna make this, this is not a commentary on an economic system or ideology. It is a condition of their hearts. And if we sell this as an economic approach, we are avoiding the real work that God wants to do in us, which is the heart. You see, it says that, it says that they were taking what they owned. And, and we see Peter saying, you have full ownership and you can do whatever you want with that. You can sell it, use it for yourself. You can sell it, give some of it to, to people in need. You can sell it and give all of it to people in need. It doesn't matter. You can do what you want with it. Just obey what the Spirit tells you to do. And it's interesting because I think, you know, we've, we've talked about this before and we need to keep reemphasizing this, that, that there are certain things that God has designed that are pathways toward intimacy with Jesus and giving is one of them. Jesus says, when you give. And here's the thing, what they were doing, and this is why I believe it's a condition of the heart, they were practicing intimacy with Jesus. They were selling their things, giving to the needy, not to solve a problem, but to become closer to Jesus and to love their family. Here's the thing. Those who were in that early church community had possessions, but they were not possessed by their possessions. Think about that in our culture. We are absolutely possessed by our possessions, aren't we? And, 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 so, and so it says no one was in need And what we see is love, real love, not love that we like to throw out and say, oh yeah, you know, we we love others. Love was being manifest in concrete, sacrificial ways in that community. And and so and so we see, we see that, that 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 idea of possessions that comes from this idea of unity and being spirit filled and them possessing possessions, but not being possessed by those possessions because they had a greater and deeper value of the family of God. And it didn't mean just the people in your own little group. It meant people in Cyprus and Jerusalem and all over who had come to Christ in faith. Third thing, we get this major hard turn in the story, don't we? We get these words talking about how wonderful it is in the early church. And then you've got this couple that shows up and seemingly contradicts everything that just was said. (laughs) Because earlier it says everyone was of one mind and heart. Okay, but no, it's not. No, they're not. Because there's this couple who are clearly not of one heart. Their will is not in the same direction as the rest of the believers. And as I said, I don't know. I don't know 
what the spiritual status of Ananias and Sapphira was. We, can, we could probably pretty easily say, oh, they didn't know Jesus. I think that's a little foolish and arrogant to throw that out because we don't know. We do know that Lot in the Old Testament who did some pretty terrible things in the New Testament confirms this is a righteous Lot. His soul was, was, was horrified day in and day out in Sodom. So Lot, probably a, 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 a person who you might say, yeah, there's no way he's in heaven. Well, scripture seems to say differently. So I don't know about Ananias and Sapphira. But here's the thing. Not everyone had everything in common at every moment. What's going on? I, I think it's power and pride. I think it's because submission to the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Spirit is a moment-by-moment moment surrender. And I don't know, maybe Ananias and Sapphira loved being in that community, but they saw, they saw Joseph, who's known as Barnabas, they saw him give, and they saw people like, ah, oh, man, let's rename this guy Joseph Barnabas because he's so encouraging. And Ananias is like, I'm encouraging. How come no one talks about me being encouraging? And so he says, hey, to, to they come up with this plan. Hey, let's sell some, some property and let's, let's do what he did, except let's not give all of it because we made a pretty good we made a pretty good sale on that property. So let's keep part of it. But we'll just tell them that this is what we sold it for. And then we can be renamed like the couple of encouragement. Like that would be awesome. And, and, so, and so they go and, and, they, and, and here's the thing. Peter clarifies, they're under no obligation to give all or any of what they sold that for. They were making a mockery of the work of the spirit in order to glorify themselves. I do think it's interesting that, that uh, they don't come in together, which maybe there's some counseling that's needed in their marriage, but, but like Ananias comes in first and he gets struck down by the Lord and then Sapphira comes in. Have, has anyone ever wondered why she came in three hours later? I have a theory. I know it's not totally biblical, but I think it's pretty solid she actually had the money they had made from the property. She was out shopping for three hours. <laughs> yesterday, or not yesterday, earlier in the first service, Rosie was pretty upset about, about that comment, but I decided to say it anyway. Um, but but here, here, they don't come together, but, but the same result of both. But here's, here's what's interesting about this, because I think it has to do with sin, life, and death. I don't know how seriously we take sin in our community anymore. And I think when we don't take sin seriously, we don't take God seriously. And taking sin seriously doesn't mean we yell at people or we shame people or we compare our slightly better behavior to other people's slightly worse behavior. It actually leads us to a different place because I think taking sin seriously means we actually fear not doing what God wants us to do. A lot of times we think taking sin seriously is that we yell at a lot of other people or we point out sin in other people's life. I think the first thing that taking sin seriously does, it makes me be more afraid of not doing what God wants me to do in my life. And, 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 so, and so it's interesting, I... I, I Something that hit me in this passage, this passage is eerily similar to a passage in the Old Testament in Joshua chapter seven. Joshua chapter seven, to give you a quick overview, children of Israel in Canaan, 
Joshua just led them in the battle of Jericho. And now, and God says to, to the people of Israel, he says, don't take any loot from the, the cities that, that I give to you. So they go on to the next battle of Ai and, and Joshua leads them to that battle and they, loot, they have a bunch of, uh, they lose a bunch of people. A city that was smaller and less defended and less impressive than Jericho. So God says there is sin in Israel. In the congregation of Israel, there's sin. And he says, someone has taken. And, and so what they find out is Joshua brings the, the assembly of Israel before him. And he, and he finds out, and Achan admits to taking some, some silver and some stuff and hiding it under his tent. So Joshua says, why would you bring this, this sin into the camp? And so Joshua says to all of Israel, they take Achan and his family and his stuff and his livestock and the stuff that he took and they take it outside the camp and they stone all of them. That feels really severe, doesn't it? But that's what they did. In Acts chapter five, Ananias and Sapphira, seemingly with a very similar heart as Achan, do a very similar thing where they disobey and they bring sin, deception, lies, pride, arrogance into the community of the believers there in the church at Jerusalem. And Peter, kind of the, the contemporary of Joshua at that moment, says, why have you brought this dishonor? Why have you lied to the Spirit? He says, you have not lied to us and you had every right to do whatever you wanted, but you decided to go with this deceptive, manipulative approach. Does, does, does Peter tell the elders of the early church to take Ananias and Sapphira outside and stone them? No. He doesn't. It just says that Ananias fell dead and Sapphira fell dead. The implication is that God took their lives. But not a person in the early church laid a hand on them. They were confronted. So seeing this, started to make me wonder. And I don't know if you've ever wondered about this, but I would suggest you at least process and think and don't outright reject this. I'm wondering, has God under the new covenant versus the old covenant, has God taken back the right to life for himself? In other words, he may have asked Joshua to participate in all of Israel to participate in the taking of Achan's life when he brought sin into the camp. But is it possible that there is a shift under the new covenant that God says, you don't participate in this anymore? I'm the one who will take care of it. I mean, we are, after all, the people of the resurrection called to proclaim life in King Jesus to all the nations to the ends of the earth. And just understand that, that, that I'm, what I'm wondering is what I've grown up believing very strongly, is that really strongly supported in God's word? because I've always felt very strongly about being pro-life 
but I've also felt pretty strongly about people who do terrible things should have their lives taken by an act of the state. And I don't know how well, I don't, I don't know, because is there a difference in the expectation of, uh, post-resurrection regarding the participation when it comes to life and death that we've missed? I don't know. But it does feel, I feel less sure about that. I feel like there might be more processing and less periods in that conversation. Last thing, on two occasions in verse five and 11 of chapter five, it says that the whole people were, were taken with fear, that there was great fear in the church. Last week, uh, we, we saw the moment when persecutions first started in the early church by the, by the council. And Peter and John make the statement, they say to the council, whether it's right to obey God or you under your threats of punishment, you must judge. But basically, we will obey no matter what the cost is. We're not afraid of you. I'm not afraid, is what they say which is also what Luke Skywalker said twice, but that's a totally different thing. Um, twice, it says, fear fell on the people. It says, it fell on the whole church. This is the first use of the word that we interpret as church in the New Testament. And I just want to again reinforce that it is, church is never ever used in reference to a building or an organization. Church is a people term, and it is a term describing when any of God's people gather together. It is not location-specific. We tend to be location-specific because we are spatial people, but understand that church is a people term, and it is never describing a location of those people. It's just that they are gathered together. You see, the church is called to holiness and loyalty to God, even at the expense of our own advancement, freedom, or security. And here's the thing. We, I think, are concerned and afraid of the wrong things. Scripture says, fear the one who has the ability to destroy the soul. Bottom line, that is the only thing we need to be afraid of. And I think this is what, what it comes down to. We have to stop speaking and living fear towards one another about the things that are happening around us in the world. And we need to start obeying the commission of King Jesus, believing that he is deadly serious. When was the last time that I or you thought and was given a, a, a moment in front of me of obedience and disobedience to Jesus or the voice of the Spirit, and I actually thought, man, if I don't obey the voice of the Spirit right now, Jesus might take my life. I am afraid of not doing what God tells me to do and following through with obedience. I'm afraid that I might miss the thing that God has set before me to do. How often do we think about that? We, I, I don't, maybe you do. And understand that fear and shame are different. God's not shaming us. 
But when it comes down to it, do you really want Jesus to return? And if you do, is it just because you're exhausted or tired of the world? Or is it because you want him to return because you know that you are absolutely on mission? Because if you are not absolutely on mission and you want Jesus to return, you should be afraid that he's coming back. I should be afraid that he's coming back. Because I don't want him to find me not doing what he's called me to do. Jackie Hill Perry, she made a comment. She said, the gospel is offensive. But she also qualified that and she said, I need to not add to that offense. Like when I'm sharing the gospel, the gospel is offensive, but I don't need to add to that offense by my words, my language, my attitude, my personality, my preferences. Here's the thing. Most often, I feel like many of us don't even give the gospel a chance to be offensive because we're busy offending people before the gospel even has a chance. And that is tragic. And then we say, well, it's because the gospel is offensive. No, you're offensive. <laughs> we didn't even get to the gospel. <laughs> there is oftentimes, I think, a much less likelihood of someone being offended by the gospel than they are of me. <laughs> and, 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 so, and so I think that, do we fear that? Or do we fear that our opinions won't be heard? It seems like we should be much more fearful of driving someone away from the gospel because of our opinions and our rights than we should be fearful of not, as priests, walking people toward Jesus, letting the gospel offend, but not being offensive ourselves. You know, it's that idea of I think very often we are much more politicians than priests. I said last week, politicians woo the heart of man, but priests woo the heart of God. We are a priesthood, and we've got to act like priests. So I want to invite Gloria Skoll up, and um, she's she's uh, many of you know her, and she's my friend, and um, I. I appreciate her, and she's gonna join me, and um, we're going to uh, answer some questions. Um, and so, uh, she's, got, she's got the uh, questions. I, I don't know what questions maybe have been asked this morning, but um, I'm looking forward to it, because I, I do think that this text, if we're honest, really does lead us to ask some serious questions um, and have some real processing and conversations. And who knows, maybe I said something that um, was unclear or even not well thought through. I think I thought through things, but we'll see. Hi. Hi. <laughs> I'm just going to start, and then we can kind of... Right. Is that good? Okay. <laughs> uh, number one. It's hard enough to pursue unity within our local church. So how do we pursue unity within the whole church? <laughs> That's a great, how many people struggle with that? It's, it's hard, I would even brought, bring that down. It's hard enough 
to pursue unity between a husband and wife who both follow Jesus. It's hard enough to uh, pursue unity between a brother and a sister, a a blood-related brother and sister who follow Jesus, um, let alone the church, let alone the the global church. Um, I think it comes comes back to this, that, that I, for me, and I'll answer this for me, I think that when I am not in unity with other believers, it is primarily because I am not pursuing filling by the Holy Spirit. Can we define unity? Because as I was thinking about that, I don't think that, I don't think, necessarily that means we're in total agreement with everything. So maybe we need to make that clarification. Yeah, Yeah, I I think unity comes down to the, the base essentials of why are we here? We are here as priests to point people to Jesus, the, the raised, reigning Jesus Christ, King Jesus. And we are to present him to all people, no matter uh, how great they are or how terrible they are. And, and I think that unity, that, that unity, that that purpose that we all have should rise above all of the other things. Now, there are things that are core because here's the thing. How can you have unity with somebody who actually says, well, you know, it, Jesus isn't actually the only way to forgive your sins. Well, that doesn't work. There's, we've just lost our basis of unity. Um, I, I think that there's maybe a very small handful of things that we can break unity over. I think it's the person of Jesus Christ. I, I think it's, I mean, I think there's a number of things um, that, that we can. Um, but again, having conversations is important because, because some people break unity um, over the songs that we sing. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think that's, I don't think that's a, a primary landscape to break unity over. Um, I, I think a lot of time. Last week I mentioned um, the idea that a priest woos the heart of God, a politician woos the heart of man. I think that we don't, it's hard because I think we're all blinded by this. I think we are much more, we act much more like politicians in the church than we do priests. And when we act like politicians, unity is not even possible. But when we become priests filled with the Holy Spirit, I think unity is. I don't know, does that help? I think that helps. I, I mean, I certainly, that's a huge, it's a huge topic. It is. And yeah. I think it's something that we as um, a church and people maybe could be talking about amongst ourselves a little bit more rather than just drawing a line yes. and saying, you don't agree with me with this and this is a really important yeah. thing, therefore, go away. Yeah. yeah. So I think it'd be great. Yes, that helps. Yeah. But I think also as one of the, priests of this body, it's great to have these conversations yes. amongst ourselves and yeah. have questions. It's okay. Yeah. Questions are good. Yeah. Yeah. So. And, and I think it's, it's okay to disagree. It's even, it's, it's important to, to, to voice and recognize, okay, there's a problem with what you said, or I don't, I don't know how that makes sense, but, but, but I don't know. I think it goes back uh, to that idea of, are we inquisitive when we run into things, especially in the body, that we might disagree, think we disagree with, or are we in the, the inquisitor, 
who basically says, you're wrong, I'm right, and I'm here to destroy you. Um, I think that's a big difference. Okay, next. Um, what, what are the, quote, right things to fear? Oh, what are the right things to fear? Um, this is super bible churchy answer, but, um, you know, Scripture says, don't fear those. Fear the one who can, who can destroy the soul. Um, don't fear those who can destroy the body. Um, I, I think the right things to fear are the things, um, taking it from, okay, you know, like maybe when you were little and uh, or younger, maybe, maybe even a teenager, and uh, your parents were away and you were doing something that they were not okay with, and then you found out they were coming home sooner than they had, you had planned on them being home. And this great fear overcomes you where you're no longer embarrassed to tell your friends what to do in that moment because you are on a, you are on a very specific time schedule and you need to fix this before they get home. I think, I think that's more so this, the fear that we should have that will God come home? Will King Jesus return and will we not have what he's given us in order? Does that make sense? Um, if Jesus returns and finds me comfortably living my life and I'm not making disciples, I should be, I think I should be pretty afraid. Um, I don't know that there's much to fear outside of that. I don't know. What, what do you think? <laughs> <clears throat> well, sure, I agree. Absolutely, 100%. No, but no, no, seriously. Yeah. But what I wanted to, uh, I'm kind of smiling about the fact that, and if I'm not making disciples, I should be afraid. And I've really been struggling with that, Oh, Matt. yeah. I've been struggling with, am I making disciples? Who, who are my disciples? Where do I go to make disciples? Am I on mission? This yeah. is a topic that the Jesus and I have been having a lot lately. Yeah. So I think it's important, maybe individually, as we are pursuing intimacy with Jesus, yeah. number one. Um, and then we can ask him, and we are pursuing mm-hmm. through the Spirit, what does it look like for me to make disciples? Who yeah. are the people to whom I am going to go and do, make disciples? Okay, that didn't come out right. But yeah. I think yeah. it's important. I think it's maybe too much of a blanket conversation or blanket mm-hmm. statement. You need to make disciples or you're not ready. Yeah. yeah. Does that? Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. I also think that, again, me saying that I should be afraid that I'm not making disciples fearing that I'm not doing what I should do is different than having shame about that. Does, does, does that, I just want to clear that up. Absolutely. I, I can fear something and not be shameful or, or ashamed. Um, God doesn't live in a place of shame with us. We are guilty of things. We, can, we should have healthy fear of not doing what he's called us to do, but we don't live in shame. And so that's when, you know, so I'm not making disciples. I, I feel ashamed of myself. No, get over that. <laughs> if you're not making disciples, you should probably maybe be really thankful that Jesus hasn't returned yet. 
Um, but again, that whole making disciple thing is a whole nother conversation. We've got to be in that. I'll be honest. I am finding out what that looks like in my life. And I'm doing some things that I've never done before that I don't know what I'm doing almost, but God is doing pretty amazing things through it. Um, and it's exciting to me. Yeah, I love that we're having that conversation yeah. and that this, this is a new, I think, a new awareness in, in the body, and that's awesome. Okay, next. Um, if we all get the Spirit in us and are saved when accepting Christ, then what's the reasoning to also then be Spirit-filled if we are all saved the same? Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that's the reality is that God... God loves us so ridiculously that he, that Jesus died for us, for our sins, rose from the dead, but God respects our, in a sense, God respects our autonomy. And so he's given to us, we make a covenant with him in salvation. We say, you know what? I recognize, because what scripture says of salvation, all you need to do is look on Christ, believe that he came, believe that, 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 that believe on the name of Jesus, believe in Jesus specifically who's been revealed in scripture and you will be saved. And with salvation comes the indwelling of the spirit. With salvation and the indwelling of the spirit doesn't mean then God controls us like puppets. We have to constantly, willingly say, I am yours to do with what you will, and that is spirit-filling. And that's why we need spirit-filling, because even after we're saved, God doesn't control us like a robot, because God loves us, and he does not have a robotic relationship with us. And so we need to pursue, eagerly pursue the filling of the spirit. Every day, every moment is the surrendering our will to his will and doing and saying things that we would rather not do naturally. Yeah. I kind of view it also as the, the whole pro, the process of working out our salvation, yeah. that we're growing. And I love that we are looking and talking about really being filled with the spirit because we can't do any of that without it. So, okay, next question. Um, what must we at Crosspoint do or repent of or become, to, or become, can I start over? Okay, yeah. thanks. <laughs> what must we at Crosspoint do or repent of or become to be more fully filled with the Holy Spirit and walk in deeper unity? Oh, wow. Yeah, good luck with that. That's a really wow. awesome question. Um, that's probably a lot of things. I'll share from with what, the God, what God's doing in me right now that I know that I need to repent of and change from um, is that I, I don't see you as family. Let's be honest. I won't do for you or I won't leverage for you or I won't sacrifice for you guys what I will leverage and sacrifice for my kids and Sherry. Um, I will do an extent for the people that I'm friends with more closely. But if I hear somebody in this room saying, I have the, you know, a legitimate need, I'm not going to do something about it like I would when one of my kids come home and is in a crisis and has a need. Um, so I think one of the things that, that I think I, maybe we corporately need to repent of and repent 
is, is turning from one direction to another, I think we've got to change what we, what we see as family. Um, and it's hard because I've been hurt by some people who aren't here anymore or who are still here. But, but again, I think that's the difference between spirit and dwelt and spirit filled is the spirit's filling provokes me to go beyond that hurt into obedience and love and sacrifice. So I don't know, there's probably a lot of answers to that question. For me, one of them is I think we too narrowly define family here and I do anyway. And I think we've got to break out of that. And imagine what God would do if we actually started to live and treat each other as family. What would the world see in us? That's a big question. Um, Does God view those who live, quote, spirit-filled differently than those who, than those just indwelt with the Spirit? Is there scripture for that? I I don't know of a scripture for that, uh, of saying that he sees them differently. Um, When we, when we are brought into the family of God, bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, here's how we are described Full stop. We are God's treasured possessions. Whether you are indwelt or pursue every day, filling of the Holy Spirit, you are God's treasured possession. Is there anything better than treasured possession? Is there another level? I don't think so. <laughs> so, so here's the thing. God will discipline us. God will work hard ways in our lives when we are disobedient. And part of obedience, I think obedience is made possible by the filling of the Spirit. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, would, I would say that's probably all we have time for this morning. Um, I did want to come back to this, and I want to I I give you something to think about again. As, as this morning, I feel like the theme a little bit is to, to, to stop and pause and to think. And, and again, don't let this be just the end of this. Keep thinking through. And hey, if, if I've said something that you say, hey, well, did, you, did you mean this by this? Um, ask me. <laughs> um, send me an email or, or let's communicate together. Um, don't let today be done. Keep going over this passage and think about these things like unity and possessions and, and, and fear and sin and life and death because these are important. This week, the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. And there's three things that I want to challenge you with. One, it is good and important to be grateful because we, as Jesus followers, should be grateful anytime image bearers are valued and protected. Okay? Anytime. And image bearers ultimately are valued and protected. Now, that doesn't mean, obviously, it's complex. But we 
have reason to be grateful. Second thing, we, most of all, as a priestly people, need to be generous. Because here's the thing. Not everyone is grateful for what happened last week. Some people are, are full of fear and scared. Some people are angry. Some people, even in our own church, aren't fully in line with what that decision was. And here's the deal. We just talked about family. And we are priests, not politicians. Our primary purpose in life, stated by Jesus, is to walk others towards Jesus. And we are called to walk those who maybe make it out of the womb. We're also called to walk those who are fearful or angry about the decision that the Supreme Court made last week. We're called to walk those towards King Jesus as well. And if the church's reaction to last week is to spike the football, then we have just traded. We maybe have a chance to be priests to the unborn, but we've closed the door on having a chance to be priests to those who we see and we hear. So be careful. Be gracious. Because because here's the thing. The very lives that, that many of you have committed to saving, those babies are born, they become children, and they become adults who need Jesus. And some of those lives that you fought for to save become the children who are at the border in a cage. And we have to care as much about their lives as we do care about their lives in the womb. Third thing is this, guard your hearts and minds. Understand that hearts don't change through legislation or court decisions. Not once has a court decision or legislation changed a person's heart. That is the priest's role. So you and I, our job is even more intense because there's more fear and there's more anger. And so we need to be more priestly than we've ever been before. So guard your hearts and minds and don't get sucked into saying, well, our nation's becoming more Christian. It's not. Because politicians aren't priests. We're the ones who God's called to walk people into the presence, the power of Jesus, and help minds and hearts change. And so that's what I would encourage you to do and encourage you with this morning. Let me pray for us. We've went way over, and I apologize for that. It was totally Gloria's fault. <laughs> Jesus, I thank you so much for this morning, and I, and I love you, and I pray 
for each person who's been here and been watching, that they would have clarity and that they would pursue the conversation and the process of becoming more like Jesus through their interaction with your word and their pursuit of the Holy Spirit and their commitment to the family of God. In Jesus' name, amen. How can we know when a, quote, family member has a need? How do we not rely on the corporate church to fill those needs? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think there's a number of pieces to that. Um, what, how do we know when a family member, and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming they're using family member in the large, con, okay. Um, I, I think in a lot of ways, we all, we've got to get past our own pride, autonomy, and self-sufficiency and be honest with our needs with one another. I know that that's, that's not what our culture teaches us. And even in a lot of ways, what church culture has taught us, we've got to get past that. But it's hard because oftentimes then we feel like, well, now we're asking people for things and they're going to think that I'm this, you know, needy person and I'm just out to get things. We just go so far in, in the kind of talking to ourselves and saying, well, this and this and this. Sometimes if we have a need, we just have to trust that the spirit is moving in us. And if we are pursuing being filled with the Spirit, then voicing those things. Um, so I think one thing, we've, we've, it is more so, I think, on the person who has the need to express the need. Now, some needs are super obvious, and we just choose to ignore them. So I think that's a big part of it. Um, so I think that's, that's one piece. Um, what was, the, what, what, did you, any thoughts on that? And I think I, I don't know the rest of the question. Oh, hit the other part of the question. So how do we know the family has needs? And then what was... So we need to, don't we need to depend on the church to handle those needs? Right. Yeah. Okay. And, and I know that, I'm, I know that this is a great question, but here's the thing. Even when we hear that question, depend on the church to handle those things. We're looking at the church as an organization and a building and an entity. And we've got to start looking at the church as us, as a people. And yes, um, through the organized, you know, it says that they came and laid it at the apostles' feet, but I guarantee you that people were just simply meeting needs in that community. And, and so I, I think the big thing is that, yeah, we, we want to express that here at the, in the context of the gathering in the thing that we call cross point as well, but we don't, need to only meet needs through the entity that is known as Crosspoint. We need to be recognizing each other and the needs in each other's lives. So often, you know, like if I'm talking to somebody and they say, oh yeah, this happened. And, and often like I can, I will say to somebody, are you okay? Do you need help? When maybe instead, if I'm listening to the spirit a little more closely, if there's something that, that I feel like I need to do for them, instead of asking them if they need help, I just need to do it. It just, it, it, just, it seems like I'm waiting for something else to, to take care of that, and I'm not really being the church in that moment. I don't know. What, what... Do you want to move on, or do you want me to comment? Do you have a great thought I, on that? I have a great thought. 
I'd love to hear it's your great huge. thought. It's huge, yeah. I want to hear right. this huge right. thought. Yeah. yeah. No, I think you, you kind of uh, also, um, you, you touched on this in a way when you wouldn't help Jerkwak, you would your daughter. I mean, so I think that kind of tends to be also part of the overall challenge is that we really do need to take the time, A, to get to know and love the people around us, be willing to step out, um, because that's a, that can be a huge commitment. Yeah. And, you know, I think sometimes, not that we are called and should meet every single need of our very own selves, but I do think we need to be more aware, and I, as you said, but I think, and then be aware and then be willing, more, maybe more willing than we are. I know a lot of us are more willing to give money rather than time. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. I, I also think we have a we have a problem with thinking that um, normal people don't need things. Right. People who've you know done what they're supposed to do. That's not true. <laughs> oh, lost the whole thing. Oh, one moment. Okay, here we go. All right. Okay, uh, can you clarify what you were saying about being pro-life and God taking back responsibility for life? Yeah, that's a great clarification question. Mm -hmm. And I'm processing this, so you know, and I'm struggling with this. What I mean by God taking back the right to life is that we, what we see in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, prior to the crucifixion, death and resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus, what we see in the Old Testament, we see, and again, this isn't an old versus new, it's a how God calls his people to participate. What we see in the Old Covenant is that God does a lot of this stuff through his people. He uses Israel in a conquest of a land, um, very specifically because he is their God. He is the president, he's the emperor, he's the king of Israel. And Joshua and Moses are doing what he says. This is before they had a king, remember. So he has Israel do that. And he told Israel, like, don't get horses, chariots, don't get armies. I will call the people I call and I will. And he executed those things through his people. And what I wonder, what I'm struggling with is, is in the Old Testament, maybe he asked his people to participate in that. But under the new covenant, under the resurrected Jesus, post-resurrection, is it possible that because our mission is very specific that Jesus gave us to be witnesses of him and God's work to every nation, to the ends of the earth, is it possible that that, that, I, that taking of life has shifted post-resurrection? And let me clarify um, one thing that we know, and we, we know this, that taking of a life, even when justified, leaves great difficulty and trauma for the person who took that life till the end of their life. And, and so there, there, for me, what I'm wondering, what I'm processing is maybe what I believe about taking someone's life who did a bad thing, even though they deserve it, maybe that's not my right, maybe that's not my government's right, maybe God took that back and said, I will deal with that. Now, what I'm not saying, to be clear, I'm not saying that I don't think Christians can serve in the military or be police officer or be in places where, I'm not saying that at all. In fact, what I would say 
in my process is I'm feeling more and more convicted that those who, who, especially part of our family members, believers who do serve in the military and as police officers and are in those moments where they, they have to take a life, that, that that impacts them. And we who did, have not been in those scenarios and cases, we need to do much more to help them with the trauma and the consequences of that act. Does that make sense? So, so I guess I'm saying, I'm wondering if post-resurrection, God has said, this is my deal. I don't need you to participate in this. Like Joshua was right in calling Israel to stone Achan. I mean, there was nothing wrong with that apparently, but God didn't ask Peter to stone Ananias and Sapphira. He dealt with them in his way. And I'm just wondering if there's a change. I think it's something not to dismiss, but to consider. Is that helpful for where I am anyway? Maybe not for what you think. <laughs> well, I think it's helpful also to know that you are in process. Yeah. I mean, you're not making a declaration of any kind. Yeah. Uh, okay. I've been a believer for years, quote, indwelt with the Spirit, but don't know that I've ever been filled with the Spirit. How do I grow in this? Such a great question. Yes, that is a great question. Um, yeah, I, you know, in the, in the text, it's interesting because Peter accuses Achan as being filled with the desires of Satan. Satan is filled with you with his desires. Um, we, again, we can be filled with all kinds of things. I can be full of myself. I can be full of, of the Spirit. I can be full of... I mean, all kinds of things. Um, I think what's helpful to me to think about spirit filling is this idea of, of my heart, my will, my control center. Because here's the thing. When, when, when we receive salvation, we are indwelt by the spirit, but God doesn't control us like a puppet. He loves us deeply, and we are, in his words, his treasured possessions, but he doesn't control us like a puppet. We have to constantly give control over to the Holy Spirit and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Filling of the Holy Spirit is really, I think, in some ways, simply letting, giving my will over to the Holy Spirit and being controlled by what God wants, which means oftentimes for me, not doing what I want and comes naturally. And so how do we grow in that? We grow in that by constantly being aware and, 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 and fighting the, the urge to just do what I want to do and actually say, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do in this moment and not make excuses for it? And that's how we will grow. And I think God will fill us more and more and more in those moments and we will obey. Um, I mean, I think that's part of it. Yeah. Um, I love this question. What are some ways we can resist adding our own offense to the gospel that is already offensive? Oh, man. <laughs> um, get off social media. Um, <laughs> I just offended some people probably. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, man, I, that is a great question. I, I, I think, you know, one of the things... Oftentimes, we think taking sin seriously is being loud about other people's sin. I don't know if that's really taking sin seriously. 
I think taking sin seriously is me being horrified that I might disobey God. And, and so here's, here's the thing. We always have these yeah buts about the culture and the things going on around us. Um, we say things like, um, yeah, God wants me to love this person who I completely disagree with and I think is terrible and they do have legitimately terrible beliefs and awful things, but if I love them, they might go on sinning. Okay, is it my job to fix or correct their sin? And how do I love them in that context? Um, I think our offense will grow as long as I feel like I am responsible for fixing people's sin. So maybe I should say less things. I should say less things. I should post less things. And I should actually love people more in a self-sacrificial way because loving sacrificially is offensive in a good way. <laughs> and, and I think that also adds healing because there have been a lot of people who, in the church, outside the church, whatever, who have been offended um, by what others might declare as truth, but been treated very badly. Um, and so I feel like if we can extend love in the, in the context of whatever sin we're talking about, also tends to lend healing. Um, it isn't up to me to defend or condemn you, yeah. but it is up to me to love you. Yeah. And I think that in and of itself can be such a huge testimony of God's gospel. Um, and that's just not offensive. I know I've had a lot of people come to me who have been hurt in the church, so they're automatically just, you know, but you, so anyway, I just think that's kind of a, a healing process that we could add to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I, we're so, we're so caught up with fear. And, and I think love drives out fear. We need to drive fear out so that people can see Jesus and his love for them. And how do we drive fear out? Love, that's our priestly duty. We are being priests when we love people because that's going to move people toward Jesus, yeah. Okay, if unity is the result of being filled with the Spirit, how does this affect how I should handle conflict with another Jesus follower? Yeah, um, and, and here's the thing. Um, at no point in the history of God's people are God's people always happy with each other. <laughs> but even in the moments when God's people aren't happy with each other, there is a, a, a unity that can be there through the power of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Spirit. So I think part of it is, what are the conflicts between other believers? Because if the conflict is that there's a different way to be forgiven of your sins than Jesus, that's a problem. And you can't be in unity with that you can't, that's not unity because you've just pulled the rug out of <laughs> the way we get unity by being forgiven by Jesus for our sins. Um, if it's, you don't like the songs and how they're done, 
I don't know, let's, let's, take that in, let's take that argument up to Jesus and see what Jesus, the righteous judge, decides. I think he throws it out of court, honestly. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't mean we have strong feelings and we can hurt each other with our insensitivity, but I'm pretty sure that's not, I mean, those are pretty extreme things, but I think there's less things to break unity over than we currently think there are. Um, yeah. We also don't have to be best friends. I mean, no. no. let's just know that, that we can have conflict and be willing to have grace yeah. without being your best friend. Yeah, yeah, and, and, I, and I think it comes back to that family thing. Um, I'm, I don't have to be best friends with, nor do I always have to be happy with my children or my wife. But, but I cannot leave or forsake them. And that, I think, is the same application to the body of Christ. So I can I cannot be best friends with my family. I can be upset with them, frustrated, annoyed, and and all of that, but I don't get to leave and forsake them. If I'm really gonna go what the Bible seems to say about what it is to be family in Christ. And I'll just be honest, that is one of my greatest struggles right now because I do not see the body of Christ as my family. Um, feel like I've been hurt too much by that family, so they don't have to be family. I can ignore them. I can dismiss them. But that's not what God says. I don't get to make that decision. So part of being spirit-filled is pushing through that, letting the spirit give me the power to do that. I think I went on to something else, but anything, just Another any one? thoughts on that? Sorry? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. God said that. Okay. Good. Moving on. Okay. We're going to move on. Okay, one more question, one more. and then we'll okay. go. I know. I'm sorry. Right. We've gone late. Um, oh, how should we go about sharing if we have a need? Kind of going back to uh, that. How to go about sharing that you have a need? Well, I, okay, in the, in, the, in the world we live in right now, um, people give through the Deacons Fund um, at Crosspoint. People who are the church give to Crosspoint and there's a deacon's fund, which is for people who have needs. And, and again, I think a lot of times people kind of think, oh yeah, but that's just, you know, if something outrageous happened in your life or something, you know, has all crumbled down. If you have a need, make it known. Um, you can call the church. I keep, I hate using the word church, but call the people. <laughs> we'll just call them the people, call the people. Um, but also, I think making your need known, I mean, live in community with other people and your needs become known. Um, don't feel bad about saying, I have a need. I think the problem comes when we, we are entitled and we say, like, I've spoken something and now somebody needs to meet my need. Um, that's, that's something that now becomes focused on me. Um, so I think being open and honest and I think vulnerable and humble, that's a huge piece. So... So, yeah. And, and again, I think part of uh, just being, knowing people or seeing somebody um, and just, you may be shy about calling the church or which the church's phone number, I mean, whatever. Yeah. But just even sharing with one another yeah. can bring that about. And we assume too much about other people. We assume we people do. don't have needs all the time. 
And sometimes I feel like I'm moved to think that I should do something for someone, then I think, oh no, they, they're probably fine. Maybe that's me ignoring the spirit in my life that I should just go do that. I don't need to ask if they have a need. I just go do that. Um, I want to I wanna just close. Um, I said I want to share some thoughts. Um, I think three things that I just want to share with you about the Supreme Court's ruling uh, overturning Roe versus Wade last week. Um, one, we can have great gratitude to God for any time image bearers are protected. We should have gratitude and rejoice anytime image bearers are protected, no matter what they look like. We should celebrate that. So that's one thing. Um, second thing is this. We are called to be gracious. Here's the thing. There's a lot of people, a lot of people who are not grateful for that decision. There are a lot of people who are actually afraid, and there's people who are angry. And we are not politicians. We are priests. And so we need to help people meet Jesus. We need to help the preborn meet Jesus when they're born. And we need to help those who are filled with fear today and anger meet Jesus. And so we need to be gracious. Honestly, there's people in our, in, in our community, in our church, who don't totally agree with that decision. And if we spike the football, we have now just closed the door on a group of people that Jesus died for and has called his priests to minister to. So be very careful and gracious how you move through this. Because here's the thing, the very lives that we have fought for to be protected over the years have been born in different places and those lives that actually got born are now lives that really of no fault of their own are in holding cells at the border. So if we only care about the image bearers and speak value in life to those who are unborn, we also need to speak value in life to the children that they become. We can't just say, I'm going to fight for you till you're born and then you're on your own. The last thing, guard your hearts and minds. Because here's the deal, no one's heart has been changed by a court decision or a legislative measure in the history of the world. It is not the politicians who change hearts it's the priests who change hearts because they model and represent Jesus Christ. So don't think that because a decision in 
a nation does reflect the image-bearing value of God, don't think that that means that our nation loves Jesus, because it doesn't. And God has called his priesthood to represent him and draw people toward Jesus Christ and the fruition of his kingdom. So that's, that's what I wanted to share with you about what God has been speaking and moving in my heart and my life. So, Gloria, can you pray for us? Awesome. Father, we're so grateful that you have called us here today, that we can be listening to your word and we can be changed by your word. Father, thank you for this time that we can express concerns and questions um, and that you've provided a, an outlet for that. Lord, thank you for the openness and the honesty that is represented here this morning. Father, I pray that as we leave here that we will not take necessarily uh, opinions, but I pray, Father, that we will take hearts that desire to know you, have, be intimate with you uh, before we care about if we're right on any particular subject. Father, I pray that you would give us hearts of surrender. I pray, Father, that we would know what it is to be filled with the power of the Spirit. Father, I pray that you would just change our lives, each and every one. Father, let us know that we have not arrived <laughs> We are still very much in process, each and every one of us, Father, and we're grateful for that. We're grateful, Lord, that you are in process with us. Father, I pray that we would be more concerned about being intimate with you, about being right on any subject. Father, I thank you for Matt and our teaching team and their willing to be, willingness to be humble, their willingness, Lord, to follow you, with their willingness, Lord, to bring these hard topics to, uh, to the forefront so that we can talk about them and we can learn and we can have questions, even maybe more than we have definition and, and answers. Father, we're grateful for all of these things. And as we leave here this morning, I pray, Lord, that we do leave in the power of your spirit. I pray, Lord, that we, each and every one of us, will leave with just a burning desire to know you, period. The end. We're so grateful for who you are. In your prayer, precious and powerful name, Lord. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Point.